Well, for our case today, Matthew 15, verse 29 through 39, asking the question, how merciful is God? And on your bulletin, you may have noticed that there's an asterisk there. And that was intentionally, because often we might think that, that God is merciful, but with a caveat. Or God is faithful, but with a little bit of an asterisk beside it. Well, in 1867, an Anglican widow gave a Baptist preacher 20,000 pounds, which is the equivalent today of about $2.5 million, to start an orphanage in London. Anne Hilliard believed London was no place for boys to be fatherless, and she heard this spoken desire of this church, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, had they had for rescuing boys from starving to death. And as a result, they started the Stockwell Orphanage. And it was opened in 1869, two years later. Ten years after that, girls were finally welcomed to Stockwell. And by the time the girls' dormitories were completed, there were 500 children living in this orphanage that this woman started. The church's pastor, Charles Spurgeon, was the most famous preacher in England. But it was not for his visionary casting of great charity that these people would have on their own. Rather, it was his theology in his sermons that made him so popular. He spoke to nearly 10,000 people every single week without any sense of amplification. And alongside his weekly proclamation, he and his associates, there were about 20 of them, and the church's elders, there were about 20 of those, led a congregation of about 5,000 plus members to understand the scriptures in such a way that the church's actions necessarily had to follow the heart of Christ. They, they saw Jesus as merciful with no asterisk involved. Or put another way, as Christians within the Metropolitan Tabernacle, their pro- practical response to the Bible's teaching was to provide orphaned and vulnerable children with shelter, education, and hope. Mormon, the Metropolitan, did I say the Mormon Tabernacle? I definitely meant the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Uh, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, by the time of Spurgeon's death, this pastor, was a host of about 30 different charities, much like this orphanage. So you think of the size of them, it would be like, if you think of the size of us, it'd be like us having one and a half charities like this. They had, they had a pastor's college, an orphanage, a baby clinic, theological libraries, clinics that people could go to, clothing outfits that people could be helped by. And these amazing works, you need to know, were done out of a reaction It was not done by a preacher's plea. It was not done because they had a lot. Metropolitan Tabernacle was in a poor part of London. And it was not out of a response to a vision that was casted or trumpeted to them. These things were done because Christians responded and understood the heart of Christ. Our sermon this morning is from Matthew 15, verse 29 through 39, where Jesus is shown to display the glory of God through his through his compassion. He demonstrated compassion. He spoke of mercy. He's recorded in our case and throughout the scriptures as having an expressive love towards those who were far away. He saw people who were far away and out of compassion or a stirring in his own heart, he went to them. This compassion comes in waves through his own ministry. He, in Matthew 14, healed the sick. He, in Matthew 15, fed the hungry. He, in Mark chapter 6, taught the crowds because he had compassion on them. He, in Luke 7, would go and wipe away tears of those who were bereaved. The Greek word, for your case, of compassion 
is the same in all of these texts that talked about how Jesus sought these people who were in front of him. It's an an ancient way of referring of what rises from your core. This compassion reveals that the deepest heart of Christ. Now today in our text, you encounter a a new stage, a giant pivot point, if you will, of Jesus' own ministry. He's drawing away from Galilee, away from the Jewish people, and now he's going towards and ministering within Gentile territory, truly going to what the Jewish people would have seen as those who are despised, those who were rejected. Yet it was his compassion that led him there. People continue, in this case, to follow him around everywhere he went. They were following him around in massive amounts. He was opposed, yet they followed him. He was countered, yet they followed him. People were amazed by him, and they continued uh, to hear his teaching as he aimed to refine or, or hone, if you will, their, their understanding about who he truly was. They, they were intrigued, and he always took that opportunity to try to clarify or crystallize exactly who he is. He would continually make the bombastic claim that he's the Messiah. And it's important to see how he's being rejected here. This is in a series of, of, of teachings within, gospels, or within Matthew's gospel of showing that Jesus is illuminating to those who are understanding what is going on. He's illuminating to those of how he's being rejected in different ways. They're rejecting him as the true Messiah. They're following him for a lot of different reasons, but they're not accepting his claim to be the Messiah sent by God for the sake of the recovery of Israel and for the establishment of the kingdom of heaven. They're not accepting him as the Savior, as the Lord, and that, Jesus counts, as rejection. Now, that teaches us an incredibly important lesson about faith here. Faith means that you know who Jesus is in full. That's what faith looks like. You fully understand and gravitate towards Jesus if you understand him in full. Now, there's a, there's a doctrinal or there's a theology note that's called the simplicity of God that you might want to write down and look down later. Well, we often think of God as super complex, but what the scriptures form for us is an understanding that God is actually, you could describe him as simple, meaning he is who he is. He is, he is all of God in who he is. He is not made up of a bunch of different parts and then slapped together. You know, he's not like Legos, where if you just could find that random red brick, then you would have your amazing, like, I don't know, Star Wars thing. Uh, He's not a composition of various parts. He is the Lord. And saving faith embraces Christ in this very claim. Now, Matthew gives us a clearer picture of Jesus through this amazing set of events through various healings and feeding of thousands of people in this context of this verse, you get a clearer picture of Jesus, his power, his compassion, and his mercy. And if you see those, your response, I think, ought to be clear. There ought to be a spiritual response, and there also ought to, I think, be a practical response. The scriptures ought to move us in a certain direction, not just, not just on our knees, but also availing our hands forward of saying, all that I have, do something with me, Lord, because of who you are. Matthew has a, see a, a competing view of Christ in their mind. Some say he's interesting or great, but he's more than that, Matthew portrays. He's God. He's the Redeemer. And this section shows in another way that he's the Redeemer as if Matthew puts all the cards on the table and now says to everyone who would read or hear, it's your turn. This is who he is. Who are you? 
I want you to see a couple of things that kind of seep to the top of this text. And the first one is I want you to be able to respond both spiritually and practically to who Christ is by recognizing that his power, God's power in Christ, is just so effortless. God's power is so effortless in the person of Christ. Now, I, I want to do this in two ways. So if you're using an outline, I'm at point one, but I got two things. Classic. First one is obvious, and the second one is a bit of irony. Now, what's so obvious here is the historical recordings of the ease of Jesus' power in healing people from physical diseases and abnormalities. The context is that Jesus departed from the borders of Tyre and Sidon and went to what's called the region of the Decapolis. Now, this area, the Decapolis, is a collection of about 10 cities. I say this so that you know that there are a lot of people around, right? So when you see, man, 4,000 people, that seems random in a giant field, all right? This is around a certain set of cities. You might think of like Garfield County. There's a lot of people here that could come and listen to someone speak. Now, this area was so populated that they were authorized uniquely by the Romans to mint their own coins, to run their own courts, to even have their own armies. They were, they were Gentiles, and they were sufficient on their own. Now, within, within the Gospels, we see another account of this in, Gospel, in Matthew chapter 7. We know that it was there that Jesus healed a man who was deaf and another who was mentally challenged. Even though the Lord told the man to be silent, he and his friends then spread news of the miracle everywhere, and this apparently caused a great crowd to gather. Look at verse 30 of our text. It says, And the great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others. Why, why did all these people start coming to Jesus? Well, he healed someone and then healed another person, and it seemed like it was an impossible doing, and he actually told them, okay, be quiet. Be quiet about this. Well, if someone healed you from something like that, what are you going to do? You're going to shout it from the mountaintops. And people are going to go, where did that happen? And you're going to point. And all of a sudden, people are surrounding Jesus left and right. But the amazing thing here is that their reaction to what Jesus was doing was so different than what we see of a common set of feeding of 5,000 people. In another case, here 4,000 people. The reaction of these people after they were being healed is look there at verse 30. Verse uh, 31, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now I want you to see the intensity of these couple of verses. Look at the end of verse 30. Look there at the end. My, my translation says, they put them at his feet. They put. You think of all these people coming to Jesus to find healing. How might you come about to this amazing display of God's glory and his effortless power? It says there that they put him at the foot of Jesus. Now this, this is from one Greek word that's Arab span, better translated, they cast them down. Now, to illustrate this, someone flailing around in a pool, grasping for the edge. What do you do when you see someone who's drowning in a pool? You might look for a life jacket. You might grab a buoy that's on the edge. And do you place it ever so politely at the edge of the pool and kind of nudge it forward towards that person who is depending on you for his life? In the same way, you would fling that thing out there and then chase after that person. This is the same word that these people are bringing their friends and family members to the foot of Jesus. They are casting their friends out to the one who can save them. It is not a careless act, but this word would emphasize their heightened attention to how glorious he is. Now, within our text, why did such a large mass of people fling their loved ones towards Jesus? It is clear here, obviously, because 
of his power. They trusted his ability to help them now. And then look at verse 30. At the end there, it says, they, they cast him towards them. And then at the end, it says, and he healed them. When did he heal him? Right then. You could say it was effortless. And this was not unusual for Jesus to do. His divine healings were meant to, in part, display his compassion, which is part of this text, but also to display his own powerful divinity. He healed them instantly. They cast him out immediately. The same, the same verbiage that is there of how immediate he cast them, it says in the same usage, the same sense of the language, he healed them right then. But here, Matthew intends to convey a deep contrast between these Gentiles here in Decapolis and the Jewish leaders, which would have been earlier the feeding of the 5,000, who would have known the Old Testament scriptures. The Gentiles here, it says, glorified Israel's God. But the Jewish leaders in Matthew 12 said that Jesus was in alliance, if you remember, with Satan. So you've got one case which didn't cause Jewish cities to repent in Matthew chapter 11, but then another case which seems to be so similar that it was the Gentiles who believed him, those who were far off, those who seemed to be discounted for who they naturally were. It was out of Jesus's compassion that he went towards them, and the miracles that Jesus performed should have convinced everyone that he was the Messiah. In fact, this is where the teaching that Jesus would have had in uh, Matthew chapter 11 is where he was quoting Isaiah 29 and Isaiah 35, where what, look at all that he was doing, bringing sight to the blind, having lame people now walk, having those who are hurting now fully healed, which brings up the measure of true faith. This is what Matthew is pointing out. What does true faith look like? Friends, here it is on display for all of us. It looks like believing Jesus is all who he was predicted to be, all he, who he was shown to be, and all he will show himself to provide by his graceful power, mute speak, crippled become healthy, lame walk, blind see. What is faith in Jesus looks like? It means looking like bringing all that you have and placing it before him with great urgency. Now, how do people respond? In this text, look at verse 31. They wondered. Now, these weren't wondering people like you may pontificate an amazing movie that you've just seen. But I would imagine that some of you, and I haven't seen it yet. I will, I promise. You know, I'm an Air Force guy, not a Navy guy, right? So how many of you have already seen Top Gun? When you were coming home from the movie Top Gun, were you just wondering, pontificating, man, that seemed like a wonderful thing. I wonder if anyone else thought it was a wonderful movie. No, you were triumphantly announcing and declaring, I just saw the greatest movie I've ever seen in my life. These people were amazed, or put it differently, they were starstruck. They wondered to the degree that they praise the God of Israel because of the power that they saw play out. Friends, the power of God, how do you respond to his effortless power? Do you see it as something with an asterisk? Good for them, not so good for me. Good for me, not so good for them. Is it too big of a problem to call out to him too? I'm always confronted, not always, because I'm going to set myself up as a loser here, I'm sometimes rebuked by my wife when I panic. And she will say politely, have you prayed to God about it? I have been thinking as if he has an asterisk by his glory and his power, right? Are the problems that we have before us too big 
of a problem to call out to him. The lazy in this passage, or in the passage last week, brought, or the lady in the passage last week brought her deepest agony to the feet of Jesus. Here, people from the deep are casting their loved ones to the feet of Jesus. Why? Well, all he's proven to be is possessing effortless powers of friends in the midst of everything that is wrong. Not only who are you going to, which we saw last week, but with what fervency are you trusting him to do something with it? That's the obvious part. Here's the irony. Notice how people are inclined, and this is us included. Notice how people are inclined to care more about their bodies than they care about their souls. Physical versus spiritual. Uh, You know, we think about this. How are people more inclined to care about their bodies than they care about their own souls? 26 months we are now after the outbreak of COVID. How concerned have you been in the last 26 months for your own physical health? I would imagine, (laughs) frankly hope, a lot. You've been thinking about it. You've been questioning about it. You've been going to doctors about it. You've been taking your care of self about it. Well, we read in verse 30 that great crowds came to Jesus. Many of them, no doubt, had journeyed many miles and had gone through great exhaustion. Nothing is so difficult and tiresome that would keep them away from their sick friends being healed by the person of Jesus. But the hope is being healed because the hope of being healed was in sight. And such hope is everything to a sick man. You don't need to be an expert on the human condition to understand what's been going on in their minds. They felt that health was the greatest of earthly blessings that they could possess next. They felt that pain was the hardest of all trials to bear. There is no arguing against this sense. A man feels his strength failing. He sees his body wasting and his face becoming pale. He is sensible that his appetite is leaving him. He knows he is getting sick and he feels like he's going to die. What does he do? He goes to a doctor. Show him a good physician with such great reputation and he will go to him without delay. These people would have traveled a long distance to place themselves urgently before the foot of Jesus. But friend, do not forget and do not neglect that it is our souls which are far more diseased than our bodies ever could be. And from there, learn a lesson from the conduct of these people. Where did they go? Our souls are plagued with sickness, far, deep, far more deep-seated and far more complicated, far more hard to cure than any condition that flesh is a recipient of. If you're here and you're not a believer, you're unused to the Bible in general, what the Bible is clear on is that you in your root is what is called depraved or wretched or, put it nicely, sinful. In fact, you are so sinful that faced up against the holy God, you do not stand a chance So the infirmities that you might have all around you or within you are nothing but a shadow of the deep darkness that is inside our own heart. Yet it is in the grace of God that he draws people to himself. And he says, give me your wretched heart, your broken heart. Trust me with everything in the same fervency that you would bring your sick friend and allow me to heal it, to forgive it to redeem it. In fact, I'm actually going to give you a new heart. 
and I'm going to wrap it with robes of righteousness so that you will be given confidence going forward. If you repent of your sins, which means you come to the cross of Christ, you come to the person of Jesus and you say, everything that I am is not what it should be and I need you to make me everything that I need to be from the inside out. He is eager and quick. And the quickening of the healing that was just before this people, he will heal you today. So the reality is we have a dark picture of ourselves in the mirror, but we have a beautiful sunrise through the window that we all look for. Now, the last couple of years have taught us nothing new about worshiping God. When you think about, just keeping it in the context of COVID here, last couple of years have taught us nothing new about worshiping God. They've only further exposed how little people think about worshiping God as important versus other things. Worshiping God is the best thing you can do for yourself. That's not me, that's the scriptures. Devoting yourself to the Lord is everything that he is worthy of you to give your devotion to. And we're designed by God to devote ourselves to him and worship, both privately and corporately. We are a new people designed for worship on our own, and God saves us into a new people designed for corporate worship. Now, the research firm Gallup Research has for years been asking people about their mental health through a variety of questions. And the numbers have been awful in the last couple of years. Everything that you would expect it to be. In every demographic that they would ask for people, people's own self-assessment, their own uh, understanding of how they are doing mentally has all cratered. And and it it is not dependent on any set of category. Gender, cratering. Political party, cratering. Race, fallen. Marital status, sick. Age, dark. Income, doesn't matter, all of it. People's self-assessed mental health has declined in every category except one. Except one. Those who regularly gather with other Christians to worship God. Now, now hang on. Those who go to worship sometimes, meaning once a quarter, once every other month, there's still a 13% drop of self-assessing how good are you doing mentally. 13% drop, those who go every now and then. Those who go once or twice a month, 12% drop. Those who attend worship on a weekly basis, even through the pandemic, 4% increase. Those who have devoted themselves to corporate worship have thrived. Friends, your soul feeds your mind. Your mind feeds your body, your brain is an instrument of God within your body. If you're sick, go to the doctor. If you are sinful, and you are, we are, go to the Lord. For all the time we devote to our flesh and blood, we must devote our heart's affection toward having our souls healed, placing ourselves around other people. I remember a widow in this church, who was away for a long time, and she said, I can't sing the first couple of songs the first time I came back because I hadn't heard voices in months. And I was reminded, I'm not alone. Do you know this? Do you feel the love and compassion that Christ had towards these people through his effortless power? Are you seeing God with your sin? Here, the mass of humanity does not feel this. Their their eyes are blinded. They are utterly unfeeling to their danger. For health, they crowd the waiting rooms of doctors. For health, they take long journeys to find good health. But what about your own soul? Friend, cast it. Place it. Make haste with it. 
to the one who can cure you effortlessly as he could those who couldn't carry themselves to himself at Decapolis. His grace is greater than any of your sin as they would bring their loved ones to the foot of this Redeemer and Savior. May we all bring our hearts to the throne room of his grace. His power is so effortless. Secondly, though, we see that his compassion is so extensive. Notice the extent of what was healed by Christ. He healed all who were brought to him. (laughs) That's the point number two. I can move on. But you'll read, I won't, but you'll read that the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, all of these people were brought to him. This is not a random healing story that Matthew inserts in his gospel. The Spirit guided Matthew's pen in such a way, such a beautiful way, as to convey the depth of what these healings signify. Christ's power to heal sin-diseased souls. And how healed were these people? Completely. And to what end do their diseases represent? The nth degree. This is the totality of what could happen to man when given over to the ways of the world. Yet his compassion is effortlessly on display here. And it's it's extensive in its might. So many of us feel compassionate about something or be led to help someone in some way. But we all have limits to how much we can help someone and to what extent we can love. But here we see that there is no illness of the body and heart that Christ cannot cure. There is no boundary for this good physician to say, I'm not an expert in that. There's no form of spiritual grievance that he cannot overcome. The heat of lust, the paralyzing effect of the love of the world, the slow feasting of laziness, the entrapment of distraction of unbelief, all, all give way when he sends his spirit on anyone. Every advertisement that we have encountering us tells us that we have too much of one thing and not enough of their thing. But it's Christ who demonstrates that he can take away what you have in sin and give you what he wants toward you in his righteousness. And no matter the depth of your sin, no matter the wickedness of your heart, no matter the depravity of your soul, Jesus's salvific compassion is extensive. It is far-reaching. He went in their case, to the ends of the earth in order to reach them. He goes as far as the deepest crevice of your own heart. J.C. Ryle says that Christ puts a new song in the sinner's mouth and makes him speak with love of that gospel which he once ridiculed and cursed. He can open the eyes of a man's understanding and make him see the kingdom of God. He can open the ears of a man and make him willing to hear his voice and to follow him whither so he goeth. He can give power to a man who once walked in the broad way that led to destruction to now walk in the narrow way of new life. And he can make hands that were once instruments of sin now serve him and do his will. Friend, the lesson from these verses is to notice that the time of miracles is not passed away. Every conversion is a miracle. If you've ever seen a converted man, you've seen the hand of Christ at work in his heart. It's as if you've seen the mute speak. It's as if you've seen the lame walk. In a converted man, you have seen the dead come alive by his power. But friend, I wonder if you don't believe that Jesus is the Savior of souls. I wonder if you are, I wonder if you think he's capable of actually saving anyone. Maybe he doesn't save you. Maybe he can't save all of us. But is, is there one or a couple that he can save? Maybe, maybe you just think it's just you that he can't save. That is a common feeling of a lot of people. You are not alone. 
There are, there are a multitude of people in this room who thought that they were too far removed for God to ever allow them to come home, to, to ever have an audience with the king. Do you, think that your, do you think about your sin and consider what could be done to exchange those sins for righteousness, to cure a heart from death to life? I wouldn't go to an eye doctor with kidney cancer. I wonder if you feel the same way about Jesus, that whatever you've got going on in here, it, it is of no match to who he was. Friends, I would encourage you just to meditate on these words. See, see the, the breadth and the extent of all those who came to Christ for healing. And I want you to, weigh, I want you to recognize how they, in many ways, walked away or left. I want to encourage you to go to Christ by faith and appeal to him for relief. It is not Jesus who has changed. 2,000 years have made no difference to his character. High at the right hand of God, he is still the great physician and he still receives sinners. He is still mighty to heal. There is nothing that is too far out of his reach. But thirdly, I want you to notice from this text that his mercy is so enveloping. His grace is extensive. His compassion is ecstatic, but his mercy is so enveloping. Thirdly, notice the enveloping compassion of our Lord. You'll read in verse 32 that Jesus then called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd. Now, the size of the crowd, the duration of the stay, this is, this is a solemn sight. It should stir your heart. Each of them, each of these people, thousands of people were eager. They were hungry. They were sick or they were near someone sick. Each one of them looking for hope. Each one of them, their soul is sick, a soul to be saved. But the attention is on Christ's heart for those in need. No one in scripture feels the way that Christ does when he sees a crowd. And it's a curious and striking fact that all these feelings experienced by our Lord when upon the earth, there is none so often mentioned that when he sees a crowd is one of compassion. His joy, you think about how he's talked about us joyful or exuding all joy, his sorrow, his thankfulness, his anger, his wonder, his zeal. These are all occasionally recorded in our gospels, but none of these feelings are so frequently mentioned as compassion. The Holy Spirit seems to point this out to us, that this was the deciding feature of Jesus' character that, that the Spirit wants us to know, and the principal feeling of Jesus' own mind when, when he was among other men. Nine times over, to say nothing of the expressions in the parables, nine times over the Spirit has caused the word compassion to be written in the Gospels when Jesus looks out on people. There's something very touching and instructive in this circumstance. Nothing is written by chance in the word of the Lord, but the following verses, which I won't dwell on in minor form, are, are sometimes understood to be controversial and highly symbolic, even though they're literal in their own way. That The controversy, some fools claim, accused the gospel writers as falsifying records to prove that Jesus performed miracles. So they, it's almost like they thought he ran out of miracles to do. And so Matthew was like, well... Uh, you know, they did 5,000, so maybe if I change some of the numbers and make it 4,000, then what? Wow, a second miracle. That's really cool. Like he's falsifying it. Friends, no, that is not true at all. Jesus, we have every indication, both historically, no one went against this, and also practically and intertestament wise, Jesus actually fed here 4,000 on top of others who were women and children in that same case. They claim that feeding 4,000 was merely an adaptation of the previous miracle of feeding 5,000. And friends, you have to recognize that if feeding four more thousand other people 
people is too hard for Jesus, then you have no hope at all to go to him with your sin. When we think about the effortless power of God, it is easy for him to divide loaves and fish, especially in comparison to making something dead come alive. So we are given great joy in this. The, the imagery here is pretty incredible. The seven loaves, a picture of perfection, a few fish. Obviously, the irony there of it actually became a lot of fish, or 4,000, or they were there for three days. All of these numbers seem to be uh, very normal in the case of the Gospels. Nevertheless, this miracle did have a special purpose for Jesus' disciples. This was a teaching instrument that Jesus was doing. And we are amazed that they had forgotten the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Remind yourselves of the question of the disciples when he said, I don't want my friends to go away hungry. What was their question? How is it possible to feed these people? As if, guys, six or eight months earlier, you hadn't seen him do this. We're amazed that they had forgotten the miracle of feeding the 5,000. The 12 were perplexed when they should have been saying, Jesus is able to multiply loaves and fish, so we do not need to worry. Of course, it may be that they all thought that he could not perform that kind of miracle in a Gentile territory. We see there a little skepticism of them going, it's fine if you feed us and our people, but these people, maybe they can go to their own home and fight for themselves. Or perhaps it's the fact that the previous crowd had tried to make him king that would cause Jesus to avoid repeating this miracle. But as the feeding of the 5,000, as in the feeding of the 5,000, this miracle took place by his own hands. Look at verse 36 of the text. He took the seven loaves and fish and had given thanks. He broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. He did it by his own hands, just like that, just like he healed them. Verse 37, and they all ate. And then what does it say? They were satisfied. They packed up, and then in verse 39, it says, they left. Now, this ought to encourage any of you who hesitate about going all in in your worship of God, to walk in God's ways. Remember what these people were doing. They came to him as, full, as they fully were, and notice how he acted towards them with compassion. Let them remember that the Savior is full of compassion. Let us remember that the Savior is full of compassion. He received them graciously. He will forgive them freely. He will remember their former iniquities no more. He will supply them all that they need with great abundance. Even to their own mind says, I'm satisfied. For those who love the Lord, those in here who love the Lord and want to passionately but feel weary from time to time. Friends, remember that Jesus is full of compassion towards you as well. He did not want his people to go home hungry. He knows what a world in which you live. He knows the body of mankind and all its frailties. He knows the devices of the enemy and the devil that is against you. The Lord pities his people with the word that Matthew records as having compassion, this, this feeling in your guts that has you go forward. You may feel real weakness. Friends, you may feel true failure. You may feel a deep imperfection, but do not forget the words of the Lord which Jesus acted out towards his people in Lamentations chapter 3. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Now, in response to the intro and for all of us today, there have been historically many great people in the churches of the world who have done many terrific things. Why? They understood the compassion of Jesus. They understood the glory of the Savior. They understood the mercy that had no asterisk 
by it. And so the call for us is how will this stir us up to worship him? How will it stir you up to worship this clearer picture of Jesus in the next seven days, in the next 30 years, for your entire life? But then also, how will it stir you up to work, making sure that others never see the mercy of God as anything likened to an asterisk, but just full of grace? Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us words to know, a testimony to understand you by, and grace to relish in. Our God, we pray that we would respond to you in kind, recognizing that you have loved us in such a way that you have provided all that we need to satisfy our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we want to go into a time of rehearsing or participating in what is called the Lord's Supper. In the scriptures, it says that on the night that Jesus was crucified, he ate dinner with his disciples, and as they were eating, he gave them and gave us a picture or a sign of the gospel. And what Jesus did at the Last Supper was take bread and wine. And he divided the bread, and he passed around the wine as a meal. So this was their partaking of a meal. And he said, you should eat of it. You should drink this. And you should see this as a sign or as a memorial of my body and my blood. Now, he didn't tell him at the time, but what was shown just one day later is that his body and his blood would be given over for them. Now, we believe as Christians, we should regularly observe what is called the Lord's Supper because it points to Christ's death. And at his death, he was killed for his people. His blood was shed for his people in a way that not only secures them in Christ or in God's favor, but also assures them of the salvation that they have. Christians, most notably, are repentant sinners. And if you're here and you know that you are broken, you know that you are unworthy, and in and of yourself, you need to recognize that this is a meal being offered for you to celebrate, to have with great joy. So I don't want anyone to go to these tables like, ho oh, and glum and sad as I, but I want you to go joyfully because of what Christ gave over for your behalf. I want you to take it and allow it to reorient your hearts toward the finished work of Christ. Now, for all of us, Paul says that we should examine ourselves. Before we come to the table, we should confess our sins so that we can take these elements with confidence, recognizing the forgiveness of sins that we have been given. Now, if you're here with us and you're not a believer, uh, we, I want to humbly ask you not to partake of these elements because of the significance of this act. It is actually for Christians. So instead, I want you to use, I want, I want to ask you to use this time to consider the gospel that you have heard and the claims of Christ that has been put before you. We, we'd love to talk to you more about this after the service, but in the meantime, I want you to allow these elements in a way to pass over you. For those of you who profess to be believers, secondly, so if you're not a believer, please don't partake. For those of you who profess to be a believer, but your life is marked by unrepentant sin. The warnings of 1 Corinthians are especially directed towards you, not just how we are to receive the supper, but why we receive it and with our posture towards receiving it. I want to encourage you to hear the warning of Scripture and to not participate today, but allow this as a catalyst to have yourself be humbled before the Lord and repent of your sins. As others are going up, you're invited to sit and repent of your sins, knowing that Christ will forgive you of your sins. If you're here and you're under formal church discipline, at any church, I also want to ask you to take the po that posture as well. 
Now, there are tables all around the room and up in the balcony. There are two cups. I want you to take both of them, and we'll take them together. If you're unable to, for whatever reason, unable to get up and go to one of the trays, you are welcome to stay seated. Raise your hand. One of our deacons will come down the aisle and give you the elements there. But let me pray, and then you are free to go after I pray, and then we'll come back and partake together as one. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a reminder of what you have done for us and what you will do for us. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have promised us that you will dine with us again. And Lord, as we take in the bread and the wine, we pray that you would remind us of the great joy that we have in Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.